If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 14. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 15 to 24. Making our way through the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for Your help now that we would hear the word of God with ears of faith. We pray that our eyes would see the things that we ought to see in Your Word, that our ears would hear the things that strengthen faith, and that our hearts would respond, God, letting go of the things of this world, and walking in repentance and faith, in renewed zeal, Father, to know Christ and to make Him known. We pray for Your help. Lord, we know that unless You build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we pray now for the Holy Spirit to be present among us, to bear fruit to the glory of Christ. Please keep me from error, Father. Please give us discernment as a church body that we would hold fast to the things that are true, even in the midst of wicked days. We pray this, God, hopeful in Christ and in His name. Amen. Friends, our passage this morning picks up in the middle of a conversation, you might say. I hope you remember the setting for Luke chapter 14. It's a dinner party at the home of a Pharisee. This is the last time that Jesus will share a meal with the religious leaders of Israel. And so far, it hasn't been a pleasant experience. We saw it last week. There was another controversy over healing on the Sabbath. And then there were some strongly worded parables from Jesus. And now today, we pick up in the middle of that conversation. And what becomes clear in this passage is that those in attendance at this dinner party don't understand that Jesus is talking about them. He's not talking about people outside the party. He's not talking about people outside the nation. He's talking about them. And they don't get it. From the very first verse, verse 15, those in attendance at the party make assumptions about their status in God's kingdom. 
in their minds, they are in. We're in, Jesus. Which means they haven't actually understood anything about Jesus' ministry or anything about Jesus' teaching. To put it a different way, those in attendance at this dinner party don't see things for what they are. They don't see the spiritual reality playing out in their own lives and before their own eyes. And so at the conclusion of this final dinner party between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Lord tells one of His most powerful and sobering parables, the parable of the great banquet. It's a parable uniquely crafted for this moment. And the parable works like a mirror, you might say. Jesus holds up this parable like a mirror as a way of saying to the people at this meal, look what you're doing. Look what you're missing. See what you're like. That's the effect of the parable. It's like a mirror that makes visible what has so far been unseen at least by those present with Jesus. And that connection, making visible what has been unseen, that connection gives us our bearings for this morning as we seek to understand the parable. It helps to think of Jesus as emphasizing the unseen spiritual realities of His ministry. Realities that are at times very clear from the eyes of faith, and yet perhaps maybe unseen by those who are witnessing them in the moment. So following Jesus' lead, that's how we're going to proceed this morning with this parable. I'd like us to think of the parable like a mirror. It's a mirror and it's revealing for us the spiritual realities at work in Jesus' ministry. Specifically, there are three spiritual realities we ought to pay attention to. The first reality is one that we've considered time and time again in Luke's Gospel, but it's repeated here. From verses 15 to 17, Jesus emphasizes the presence of the Kingdom. The presence of the Kingdom. The text begins with an interesting exclamation from one of the guests. Notice verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, you know by this point that the kingdom of God is nearly always the subject of Jesus' ministry in Luke's Gospel. Jesus proclaims the kingdom with His preaching. Jesus displays the kingdom with His miracles. And Jesus will inaugurate the kingdom through His life, death, and resurrection. When it comes to Jesus in Luke, the kingdom of God is nearly always the subject. But in verse 15... This man is not really talking about Jesus when he mentions the kingdom. The man is talking about himself and his friends. It's true that those who eat bread in the kingdom of God will be blessed, but that's not the man's point. The man's point is that he will be one of those blessed. He will be present there at the great banquet. He and the religious leaders will sit in the kingdom of God, feasting at the Lord's table. In other words, the man in verse 15 assumes that he's already in. He assumes he's already in. Rather than listen to Jesus, the man rests in his assumption that he is included. Now, you should see that that's a problem. If you're a parent, or if you've ever been a school teacher, you know the problem of people assuming that they already know something. 
What happens when someone assumes they already know something? They don't listen, right? If I already know the answer, then the one thing I'm not going to do is listen to this lesson. I already know. And that appears to be the problem here in verse 15. Because the man assumes that he's already in, he's not doing the one thing that he ought to do, which is listen to Jesus. So Jesus, like the master teacher, responds with piercing insight. He tells a parable, but not just any parable, a unique parable. Notice how the parable begins. Look at the setting. It's quite significant. Verse 16. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Now, the key here is the connection that Jesus establishes between kingdom and banquet. Do you see that connection? In verse 15, the man is talking about the kingdom of God. And in verse 16, Jesus begins talking about a banquet. Kingdom and banquet. That connection is not incidental. It's not coincidental. That connection actually comes from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 25, which we've already read from twice today. In Isaiah 25, the prophet describes the day of God's salvation. And on that day, God will spread a great feast, a great banquet, you might say, on the mountain of the Lord. And that feast will be rich. Isaiah says there will be sumptuous food and aged wine and every good thing. It's a feast. And what's more, it's a feast that celebrates the destruction of death. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, God will swallow up death forever. And that's why God throws a feast on the day of salvation. Finally, sin's curse has been put away. Finally, the bounty and the joy of paradise has been restored, but in a much more significant way. Salvation has come. Death has been swallowed up. And therefore, we feast, God says. You come to my banquet. So when Jesus begins the parable with this image of a great banquet, it's almost as though Jesus is saying to the man, you want to talk about the kingdom of God and your place in it? Let me tell you what you're not seeing. Let me tell you what you're missing. So with that connection established, notice where Jesus goes, verse 17. He's still in the parable here. And at the time for the banquet, the master, the host, sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. In Jesus' day, dinner invitations were a two-stage process. First, the host would send out something like an RSVP. That's what happened in verse 16. And the guests would respond by saying, yeah, we're going to come. When the banquet's ready, we're going to come. And then on the day of the banquet, once the host had gathered all of the provisions, he would send another message and he would say, okay, everything's ready. You can come now. It's time for that banquet I told you about. You RSVP'd and now is the time to come. So it was a two-step process. And if you responded to the first invitation, then it was expected that you would come when the second invitation arrived. If you said yes first, when the second summons comes, you're going you're to come to the banquet. The key point in verse 17 is that the second summons has come. Please don't miss that seemingly small point. Come, for everything is now ready. In other words, now is not the time to prepare to come. Now is the time to come. The banquet is no longer being prepared. The banquet is ready right now. And if you want to join the feast, then you need to come now. So take in the whole picture 
for the setting of the parable, connecting verse 16 and verse 17. If the banquet pictures the kingdom of God, and if the banquet is now ready, then what does that mean for Jesus' ministry? It means, friends, that the kingdom of God is present right now in Jesus. The kingdom is not merely coming one day. No, the kingdom has broken in today with Jesus Christ. To be sure, the kingdom has not come in all of its fullness. There's still the final consummation to arrive, which is why we say the kingdom of God is an already but not yet reality. But even so, the kingdom is present in Jesus. And that's what the guests in verse 15 fail to see. They're thinking of the kingdom as primarily future. And they're assuming that their place in the kingdom is already secure. But in making that assumption, what are they missing? The necessity of listening to Jesus. They're missing the necessity of listening to Jesus. In fact, verse 17 can be taken almost as a summary for Jesus' ministry. His teaching, His Miracles, His parables, all of those things are saying, come, come, for the kingdom is is here. The kingdom is present. The banquet is ready. Indeed, that's one of the takeaways for us. At least it should be. When we think about the promises of God, the central hinge that makes those promises real is Jesus Christ. That's not to say other things aren't helpful in confirming the truthfulness of the Bible or the reality of God's promises, but the central hinge that makes God's promises real is the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of the Bible's good news is good because of Jesus. All of Scripture's comfort is true because of Jesus. Every hope we have for salvation and restoration is realized only because of Jesus. That's the great tragedy of the dinner party in Luke chapter 14. The religious leaders assume things about the kingdom, but unless they see Jesus for who He is, they will miss the very thing they're assuming they already have. So mark it down, friends. Mark it down. One of the takeaways of this text When we think about God's promises, the central hinge that makes those promises real is Jesus Christ. His person and work. His historical life. His flesh and blood reality. Without Him, there is no salvation, no future, no kingdom. But in Him and through Him, salvation is accomplished. And amazingly, the kingdom of God is present. The banquet is ready. The kingdom of God is present in Jesus Christ. The second reality of Jesus' ministry picks up with the host's summons in verse 17. Despite the invitation, the guests don't come. And so in verses 18 to 20, we see the danger of lesser things. The danger of lesser things. That's the second spiritual reality of the parable. Again, in the flow of the parable, the banquet is ready. The second invitation has gone out. And so the expectation is that the guests are going to come. They said they were going to come. Now it's ready. Come on. 
But verse 18 puts the situation in stark, surprising terms. Look again, verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. They make excuses. Understand, this is no small thing. The banquet has been announced. The invitation is not unexpected. And yet, when the day of the banquet comes, they all make excuses. This is no small thing. To reject the invitation is to reject the host. Is to reject the friendship of the host. It's to spurn his generosity. It's no small thing. And when you look at the excuses in the passage, none of them really add up. <laughs> One commentator on this passage said that every excuse is quite frankly lame. And they are. The first guest says he has to check on a field that he just bought. But let me ask you, do you buy a house without looking at it first? No. He's already looked at the field. He just doesn't want to come. The second guy says he has to go check on some oxen that he just bought. Do you, do you buy a car without looking at it first? No. He's already checked out the oxen. He just doesn't want to come. The third guy says, I just got married. And we say, okay, well that makes sense. He cannot come. But, again, remember the context. He knew the feast was coming. He knew it was going to be ready. And he said he would attend. What's, what's more, he can surely bring his wife to the dinner party with him. He can surely bring his wife to the banquet. As with the other two, he just doesn't want to come. None of the excuses add up. They're all lame. They don't make sense. But we need to press this a little bit more. It, saying that they don't add up is true, but there's something else that should get your attention about these excuses. Did you notice that none of them are sinful or immoral in and of themselves? It's not wrong to buy land. It's not wrong to buy capital equipment, which is what oxen were in Jesus' day. It's certainly not wrong to get married. Those are good things, even. But that's precisely why the lesser things are so dangerous. Here's the principle that Jesus is trying to get us to see. Most often, it's the concerns of everyday life that keep people from the kingdom of God. It's the concerns of everyday life. It's not always the gross, sinful, immoral things that keep people away. Most often, it's all the stuff of today. It's all of the concerns and the pressures and the worries of the present. It's good things, in other words, that we make into ultimate things that end up keeping us from the one thing that we ought to do, listen to Jesus. And so as you read verses 18 to 20, just be clear on this. As you read verses 18 to 20, the wrong response is to shake your head and say, look at these silly people. Look, look, look at these silly people. I can't believe they would do something so foolish. That's the wrong response. Because, like the man in verse 15, it assumes that you have nothing to learn from Jesus. It's also wrong to read verses 18 to 20 and think, well, whew, man, I'm sure glad that I don't have a bunch of sinful 
habits and hang-ups that are keeping me from deeper discipleship. I'm glad that's not me. That's the wrong response because that's not what Jesus is talking about. Just put it as plainly as I can. Jesus is talking about people like you and me. People whose lives are caught up with all of the everyday stuff. And He's urging us, He is urging us to see that most often it's not necessarily the sinful, gross, immoral things that keep you from the kingdom of God. It's just the stuff you've got to get done today. It's just the everyday things of life that keep us from following Christ as we ought to follow Him. Jesus has a lot more to say on this point. He has a lot more to say about rethinking our everyday lives in relationship to the kingdom of God. There's a real cost to discipleship. And Lord willing, we're going to think about that in next week's passage. But for this morning, I want to pause here for just a minute. And I want to ask a different question. The question is this. What do you think would have kept those guests from making such lame excuses? What insight or piece of information would have held them back from those everyday concerns being more important? What would have made the difference? What would have kept them from making these excuses? Friends, I will contend that the answer is understanding the richness of the Master's banquet. That's what would have kept them from making the excuses. The richness of the Master's banquet. If they truly understood the splendor and the extravagance of the invitation, then no everyday concern, no matter the size, would have kept them from making an excuse. No everyday concern would have kept them from the feast. The reason they make excuses is not that their views of everyday life are too big, it's that their view of the Master and His banquet is too small. And that's the takeaway that I want to impress upon you this morning. There is no secret key to Christian discipleship. There is no silver bullet to following the Lord. Do you hear me clearly on that? There's no like magic trick that once you learn it, you'll just start growing and you'll never stop. That, that doesn't exist in Christianity. But this point comes about as close as you can, at least in my view. And the point is this, the depth of our discipleship often corresponds to the depth of our view of God. The depth of our discipleship often corresponds to the depth of our view of God. The more deeply I see and believe that nothing compares to communion with God, then the deeper my obedience and my discipleship tend to go. Conversely, when I think small thoughts about God, when I think that He exists to serve me, when I think small thoughts about God, then my discipleship and my obedience tend to be small and weak and anemic. The depth of our discipleship, it's, it's countercultural in this me first world. The depth of our discipleship often corresponds to the depth of our view of God. So, the people in the parable, this is so important that we not misapply these parables. We've got to see the people in the parable, first of all, don't need more willpower. They, they don't need more personal commitment to just do the right thing. 
No, first and foremost, the people in the parable need a deeper vision of what the master means when he says, Come, for everything is ready. Don't you want to come? The same is true for the Christian life. A life of obedience to God and faith in Christ is far better than anything this world can offer. Do you believe that? That kind of life is richer than any worldly pursuit. Friends, this is why our church's mission statement begins with the word treasure before it gets to the words build and proclaim. We put them in that order on purpose. What's the first step in all deep and lasting discipleship? It's not to do more stuff. It's to have your eyes open to see that the Master's banquet is unthinkably rich. It's to have your eyes open to see that the kingdom of God is present in Christ and that kingdom is unspeakably satisfying. It's just like the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say make rational deductions and exert your willpower in order to just make a better choice. That's not what he says. He says taste. Pick it up and eat it. Taste that the Lord is good. Don't just nibble at the edges of Christianity and then spend all of your days wondering why your discipleship leaves you feeling hungry. Taste! Drink from the well of God's glory in the Gospel. And when you do that, when you do that, you will see that these excuses of everyday life pale in comparison to communion with God. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, put this point in this way. Outside of the Bible, outside of the Bible, this statement that I'm going to read to you is perhaps the most transformative and certainly the most challenging statement for me in, in my life. This is how Lewis put the point from his essay, The Weight of Glory. Quote, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Close quote. That's what's missing from the people in the parable. That's why they make excuses. It's not that they thought too much about everyday life, it's that they thought too little about the Master and His feast. So, brothers and sisters, if you want to take your discipleship to a deeper level, if you want your following of Jesus to go deeper, then do this countercultural thing. Get in the Scriptures every day, and before you read a single word, plead with God to help you see how rich and satisfying and wonderful and splendid and awesome and magnificent He is. Get in the Scriptures every day and plead for God to help you see. Help, plead for God to help you see what is true. Not see yourself, not see the things that you want to see, but to see God. 
and beholding the glory of the Lord, we will all be transformed from one degree of glory to another. How does the transformation happen from one degree to the next degree? Because you see! Get in the Scriptures every day and ask God to help you see Him. That's how we turn from the danger of lesser things. That's how we avoid making such lame and frivolous excuses like the people in the parable. Not by merely making better choices, but by cultivating better, more God-centered desires. All of that then comes together, friends, to give us the third spiritual reality in this parable. The presence of the kingdom and the danger of these lesser things, they combine in one last reality from verses 21 to 24. It's the responsibility of grace. The responsibility of grace. Despite the excuses, the master is undeterred. Beginning in verse 21, he sends out his servant to invite the outcasts. Look at verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, that's a description of Jesus' ministry so far in Luke, isn't it? It's not the elite members of society who have responded to Jesus. Who has responded to Him? Tax collectors and sinners. Fishermen and nobodies. That's who's responded to Jesus. The people whom the religious leaders look down upon. So verse 21 is a description of Jesus' ministry. Again, notice the mirror-like effect of the parable. Jesus is showing His audience what they are like. They're the ones in verses 18 to 20 who make the excuses and miss the banquet. And because of that, the Gospel has now gone out to those that you would not expect. The poor and the outcasts. That's surprising, but that's how the Kingdom of God works. It's upside down from the ways of the world. There's another surprise, though, in the parable. The host's invitation expands again. Notice verse 22. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. So it's not only the outcasts, of society who are brought in. It's also those outside of the city. Those who would be strangers to this community. That's why they have to be compelled by the servant. Because they didn't hear the first invitation. They don't know the master. They don't know where he lives. So they have to be strongly urged to come. The servant's going to go even outside of town. Tell people to come in. In terms of interpreting the parable, I take this as... Jesus anticipating the Gentile mission of the church, particularly in the book of Acts. You might say that the original guests were the present nation of Israel, and then the second set of guests were the overlooked members of Israelite society, and then the third level, the hedges and highways people, those are the Gentiles. The Gentile mission of the church. Again, Jesus is using the parable like a mirror. He's showing the audience what they're like. But while that interpretation is interesting, the the real key of verse 23 is the final phrase. Look, Look at the final phrase. Why is the Master so insistent on inviting other guests? Why? So that the Master's house will be full. 
Friends, that's a remarkable statement on the sovereignty of God's grace in saving sinners. It's a remarkable statement. God, through the gospel, will not be deterred. His banquet is ready. His kingdom has come in Christ. And therefore, God will not be stopped. His table will be full of guests. His kingdom will be full of redeemed sinners saved by grace. Nothing can stop that. Not even the hard-hearted, excuse-ridden response of Jesus' audience. So just take a moment to, to savor this reality here in verse 23. God will not be stopped. His kingdom will come in all of its fullness. It's a remarkable picture of the sovereignty of God's grace that cannot be thwarted. But I want, I want us to note where the sovereignty leads. This is perhaps the final surprise to a surprising parable. The sovereignty of God's grace should lead us to face the responsibility that people have in hearing the Gospel. Look at verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So the point is clear. There are consequences to rejecting the Master. There are consequences to rejecting Jesus. And that consequence is that you will be left outside of the kingdom of God. When the feast begins, you will not be seated at the table. So notice how sovereignty and responsibility come together here at the end of the parable. God, by His grace, is sovereign and saving His people. There will be no empty seats at heaven's banquet, praise God. None. And therefore, therefore, you ought to respond to the Gospel and you ought to respond today. This is perhaps something we don't always do a very good job of emphasizing. But the sovereignty of God's grace makes the call of the Gospel more urgent, not less. It makes it more urgent. Because we know that God will not be stopped, we implore sinners to repent and believe today. Because we know there will be no empty seats at heaven's feast, we go even to the ends of the world telling people that the kingdom is present in Jesus Christ and calling them to trust in the Gospel. Because we know that these things are true and that God cannot be stopped, we, we hold up the mirror of God's Word to the world and we urge people to see the necessity of trusting in Christ. God in His grace is sovereign, as verse 23 says, and the sovereignty of that grace should cause each person to take seriously their responsibility to respond to Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're going to end this morning. You may be here this morning and you may recognize that you are, you are not trusting in Christ. You have not repented of your sin and turned to Christ alone and faith alone to save you. You may be here today and you may even agree with Jesus that so far you've just been making excuses to God. If so, friend, I want you to understand that recognizing those things comes only by the grace of God. Only God, by His grace, can open your eyes to see the truth about Himself and about yourself in connection to Him. Only God can help you see that. Only God can bring you to the end of yourself, the end of your effort, the end of your excuses. Only God can do that. 
So as, as you hear the Bible today, as you hear the Scriptures today, and as you see yourself in the mirror of Jesus' Word, I pray that you would respond. I plead with you to respond. I pray that today you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. To use Jesus' language from this passage, the banquet is coming, and it's coming whether you respond or not. In fact, the banquet is here. It's ready. It's present in Jesus. And God, by His grace and through His Word, calls you today to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. There will be no empty seats at heaven's banquet. So you ought to believe today. And friends, at the end of the day, that's, that's what we all need. We all need God through His Word to open our eyes to see what we cannot see. The process begins the day you become a Christian and it continues each day as a Christian. That's why we need the mirror of Scripture that shows us what we so often miss. The presence of the kingdom, the danger of lesser things, and therefore the responsibility of grace. May God give us grace to respond to His Word by the power of His Spirit, all to the praise of His grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do ask for Your help that we would have our eyes open to see what is true about You and about the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would have our hearts ready to submit ourselves to the Scriptures as applied by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for grace today to hear Your Word, to believe, and to respond in obedience and faith. We ask now, Father, that You would prepare our hearts as we sing this last song to come from Your table, to come to Your table. We pray, Lord, that there would be no unconfessed sin in our lives, that we would come with joyful, humble hearts to receive, Father, from the bounty and from the provision in Jesus Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen.